welcome to Creative Piecemeal Podcast, a podcast for creatives. I'm your host, Tammy Takeishi. Join me for compelling conversations with artists, actors, authors, musicians, and other creatives about the impact of the creative and fine arts in their lives and our ever-changing world. Thank you for listening. Welcome to Creative Piecemeal Podcast. I'm your host, Tammy Takeishi. Today, I am joined by recording and sound engineer, Mark Miller. He is a Western Massachusetts-based recording engineer and sole regular member of the techno-industrial band Out Out. He was the founder and owner of Slaughterhouse Studios before closing it and founding Sona Lab with Justin Pizzoferrato. Welcome to the show. I'm excited. I've not had a person on the show who's a recording audio engineer before. And I'm just curious, who or what inspired you to go into that field? Oh, boy. I mean, since I was a kid, um, my eldest brother had a tape recorder when I was four, uh, one of the old reel-to-reel style. And I begged him to teach me how to use it. And he did. And he trusted me with it at age four. (laughs) So I think the seeds were pretty well sown. It was always fooling around with electronics ever since. Nice. Yeah. Wow. At the age of four, not too many people can say they've got their start there. <laughs> it was that or being a DJ when I was um, in like middle school, I was fascinated with DJing and I did do some DJing as well through middle school and high school. It was the recording side that stuck, I think also because I was fascinated with uh, synthesizers and electronic music. And I got my first synthesizer when I was in high school and of course it needed to set about recording it somehow. So I started recording myself and making up songs and just kind of figuring it out as I went. And I had a, a good friend who lived across the street from me, Hamath Swami Nathan, and he uh, had a four track and a guitar and we traded equipment back and forth and sort of taught each other tricks. And that's, I think the roots of learning basic recording skills was during those years in high school with Hamath. Did you end up studying music or recording in school? I tried. I did a year at UMass Amherst where I tried to do a bachelor's degree with individual concentration, but the facilities weren't really there in the late 80s for um, what I wanted to do. Um, so I actually dropped out with my parents, not just consent, they they encouraged me actually. I took a year off and they encouraged me not to go back because by the time I'd gotten a, a year in, I was already... Um, interning at one studio as well as working at a, at a record store full time. And I had most of an album written that was being, um, well, there was a small record label in uh, new Britain, Connecticut, I believe it was that was interested in this record that I'd recorded in my basement. And so between those two things and having a decent regular day job at the record store, uh, they thought mm, you should keep doing what you're doing. So after one year of college, it was, that was it. Well, yeah. I mean, if you have a passion for it and you're able to keep the lights on, why not, yeah. right? And the studio that I was interning at, even going back as early as oh, age, I think it was around age 18, it was run by a, a friend who worked at the local music store. And I think he saw something that he wanted to encourage. And so he really took me under his wing and became my mentor. Got me going pretty hard. <laughs> he, was, he was really supportive. It was really excellent. 
wonderful. Yeah, shout out to Rusty Annis. <laughs> One of your favorite moments recording. Well, yeah. generally speaking, in recording, those favorite moments when you've got a band or a performer in the other room is when it just all clicks and you hear what basically sounds like the finished song just coming right out of the speakers. And that only really works, obviously, if you're recording a band that is playing together at the same time. Um, but when that happens, it is a moment that I think everybody in the room knows it when it happens. And that's a marvelous thing. Just uh, capturing that performance and, and going, yeah, this is what the world's going to hear. We got something here. That's a great feeling. A specific feeling. Um, boy, there's so many memories of just of just like the anticipation and excitement of working with an artist that I admire and respect and having it work out and the, the personalities really clicking is, uh, is always very satisfying too. That's a lot of it too, is there's aside from the creative side of things, there's a lot of interpersonal relationships that get built when you establish a relationship with an artist or a band. Uh, some of my absolute best friends on the planet are people who I've known some of them for 30 or more years and they're, all from bands that I worked with. That's how I met them. That's wonderful. Are there any bands that you wish you could have recorded in history? <laughs> oh boy, sure. Um, I could say something obvious like the Beatles, but I would say XTC. The way they used the studio in their middle and later career was not very different from the way the Beatles did. They stopped being a touring band and just focused on using the studio as another instrument. And I'm they're probably one of my favorite all-time bands. So the <laughs> yes, the, the ability to to even be just a fly on the wall for some of their recording sessions would have been a marvelous experience. What is a piece of recording advice that you ignore and then a piece of advice that you always follow? Ooh. Ignore would be what's the right way to do this? That is, while there are good good guidelines to have, just probably like in any creative or technical field, there's good guidelines. It's not purely a technical field. So, yeah, there's the the theoretical right way to do something, but doing it the inverted commas uh, wrong way can sometimes yield the most interesting results sonically. You can get something surprising that catches the ear just putting a microphone in a place maybe you wouldn't think would work. Um, oftentimes, if I've got a drum a drummer in the uh, in the studio, I'll throw not just a, you know a pair of room mics. Like a lot of people will put mics in the room to capture the sound of the room as well as the mics on the drum kit. But I'll maybe throw a mic on the floor behind the drummer, or you know some some place just weird. Or maybe the guitar player's got a, a a mic that they so he can talk to the other people in between takes or even do vocals. But if, if they're not singing, that mic is still on and maybe it has a really interesting sound and it wasn't intended to be for the drums, but there's the drums in there and they sound really cool. So breaking breaking rules as much as using guidelines to uh, to get started. Yeah. <laughs> uh, things that I always do or I always try to do, I think the number one thing, at least since the era of digital recording, is keeping track of files, meticulously labeling things, labeling files, putting dates on everything. Every time you do a rough mix for a client, you put the date on it. That I just went back and found um, a bunch of takes from a client of mine from 2010. 
because they wanted to revisit all these songs. There was like 25 songs that they had just sketched out. And here we are 12 years later, and then we're trying to actually turn them into finished full recordings. And if I hadn't dated those files, finding them would have been a needle in a haystack. Yeah, and then, of course, backing up all your backups. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah, at least two copies of everything at all times. Three, ideally. And if you can, get another one off-site. What's one of your favorite things about your career field? Well, it's people, but it's it's when somebody comes in with a vision for their idea, for their creative work, and they leave feeling that they've achieved it and it matches what their imagination had or comes close to the, you know, what their imagination was, which is not always easy to do because as a musician myself, I, I rarely ever come up with a song in my head and have it actually sound like that when it's finished. But even if it's close enough, it's that satisfaction of, yeah, we, 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 we got this. This is, this sounds great. Or if, if I can exceed their expectations with my part of the job, they're even happier than they expected to be. That's always just so satisfying, but it's ultimately that comes down to the relationship with the people as much as it does to the art. Yeah. It's an art form to do what you do as well. You know, taking the product from the artist and helping to fine tune it into what they, what they hoped. And then some. Yeah. And, and of course you're trying to interpret what that is through your own filters too. You know, I'm always, I'm always bringing my expectations of what a guitar should sound like and maybe it's not what they want. So I have to be ideally nimble enough to pick up on that and go, Oh, Oh, okay. They, well, for here's a good example. Somebody once asked me if, if I could make their guitar sound more purple and it took a while and I did my best to bring up like synesthesia aspects of what sound and, and color would be. And if blue is cold and cold is tends to be lacking warmth in a sound. If you're going to use these metaphors of temperature, then red would be hot or warm. So it would be a a warmer, richer sound. So purple was somewhere in between. And I don't know if I went from the direction of it being more warm or more cold. I don't remember what, what the starting point was, but I remember that thinking, okay, what am I going to do with purple? you know, very quickly on the spot, what do they mean by purple and reaching for probably an equalizer and turning up or down the bass and just making it more or less warm sounding and boom, they were like, yeah, 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 that's it right there. <laughs> do you tend to encounter musicians with synesthesia or many of them in your work? I think probably more than I'm aware of. I think it's actually fairly common. Um, I think I think I've only met a few people who, who actively have you know said, yeah, I, I have some form of synesthesia. The, the people that I encounter that have absolutely perfect pitch or perfect absolute pitch is another. I guess that's, there's a number of different terms for it. My mom had absolute pitch where they can recall, not only recall the pitch or a key of a song from memory, but can you know, sing it right on pitch without any outside reference makes me wonder if there's something sort of like synesthesia going on yeah i i once knew a person in grad school who had perfect pitch because he had synesthesia so for him every single note was a different shade of some sort of color yeah of course when you assign notes to color you're gonna get a perfect score on a 
on a pitch test, the rest of us were struggling along. You know? Yeah, yeah. My mom could recall. You could you could play a chord for her, and uh, I did it over the phone a few times. Mom, what's this chord? And she'd be like, Oh, that's a blah blah blah, and it's composed of these three notes. And yeah, lo and behold, she was always right. That's fantastic. Did you inherit that gift? Not fully. I have. I have very strong relative pitch, and I have noticed over the years that I I can often think of a song and sing the melody without having heard it, you know, recently or having listened to any other music recently, and just sing it. And then I've tested myself a few times, go on YouTube and play it, and it's like, yep, that's it. <laughs> so there's there's a bit of that there. Do you ever hear a song and go, oh, it's in the same key as this song, and it reminds you of that? Not not with keys, but with um, with chord structure, rhythmic structure, melodic structure. But I think a lot of people do that. <laughs> they go, oh yeah, that sounds sort of like whatever by so and so. If you could just wake up one day and play any instrument that you don't already play, what would it be? Hmm. That I don't already play. I don't play any one instrument particularly well, which is the funny thing. Um, violin, perhaps. I think that the amount of skill and, and dexterity and hearing involved in playing violin is, is astounding. Um, for instruments that I do sort of play, I would really love it if I could somehow be an actual guitar player. <laughs> I can't get my left hand to cooperate. Um, that I've tried to do, and I, I'm not very good at it. If I, was a, if I spent more time playing drums, I actually would probably be a pretty, pretty decent drummer. And I'm okay on keyboards, but I can't sit down and play you a song. I can... I've been using keyboards since, like I said, my first synthesizer in high school as a writing tool using MIDI and, you know, sequencing and layering up one part at a time, you know, building all of the parts on top of each other using a computer. And that's, I mean, of course, that's very common now, but back in the, in the late 80s, it was actually a fairly rarefied thing. Not a lot of people, you know, were doing that outside of studios. The affordable sequencers for home were just coming on the market and I... Saved up my money and grabbed one right away when I could. If you've been feeling burned out, stressed, overwhelmed, or exhausted, the resources and courses at the Self-Care Institute are here to support you. The Self-Care Institute was founded by Dr. Ami Kunimura and provides support for individuals and organizations with burnout prevention, burnout recovery, and stress management. I've personally taken a few of these courses and found them to be super helpful, both professionally and personally. The care you give yourself matters just as much as the care you give to others. But if self-care is difficult for you, you're not alone. And the Self-Care Institute is here to support your well-being, resilience, and sense of fulfillment at work and at home. For more information, visit selfcareinstitute.com or go to the show notes and click on the link. So does that mean you were influenced by um, some of the minimalist composers and electronic composers of the time? Definitely. For minimalist composers, uh, Steve Reich, um, Philip Glass, for sure, uh, John Cage. For electronic music... Going back to some of those uh, like Odyssey Records collections of electronic music with like Pauline Oliveros. Actually, Steve Reich was on a record with Pauline Oliveros in the, I think the late 60s. To bands like Cabaret Voltaire, um, 
you know, in the late seventies, early eighties, they were fairly big pioneers of electronic sort of danceable music. Actually, they got quite danceable in their later career. Uh, Craftwork would be an obvious one. There's so many. (laughs) Having three older brothers who all gave me records and things growing up, and all of them significantly older than me. My uh, my youngest brother is eight and a half years older than me, and then they go up from there. There was a lot of uh, different stuff being given to me at Christmas, like getting a residence record in fifth grade was a <laughs> was a treat. Do you still have quite the collection nowadays? Oh yeah. <laughs> between my wife Elizabeth and I, our vinyl collection is probably somewhere between all of the singles and LPs is probably somewhere around the four or five thousand unit count. And Impressive. CDs is probably in close to three thousand. And I've whittled down the C D collection. The C D collection at one point I think I had about five thousand. But for some reason, I just started selling some of them off because I was like, wait, well, I think a lot of it was when I was working at a record store for six years, I was taking home stuff all the time. And oftentimes it's like, yeah, I'm not really listening to this anymore, but I've managed to still keep 2,500 or so. So (laughs) I don't know. I I thought I had a lot of CDs. (laughs) (laughs) Finally, someone who has more than me. I don't feel so bad. What do you have, a thousand? Around there. that's, That's perfectly respectable. Of course, for a musician. Yeah, yeah. So speaking of music collection, if we were to rifle through that, what are some of your absolute favorite records, albums, CDs? What would we find? No, that's, a, that's a very tough question to ponder. Well, XTC, for example, um, not every single thing they've ever released in every version, but I have multiple copies of every record in various formats from them. I have a lot of um, Einstein and Neubauten, that German band. I guess they were called Industrial at one point, but they're... I think it was because you know they were banging on shopping carts early on in their career. Uh, a whole lot of Todd Rundgren, a lot of Cabaret Voltaire. Those are all very important parts of the collection. Medicine, we have a bunch of Medicine or a wonderful California band. And you know, it just goes on and on. It's it's. I think for one like one single, if I was to think of one single record, the artist. Oh boy, am I forgetting? Why am I forgetting his name now? He put out a record of all covers of uh, A Bicycle Built for Two. So every song on it is all versions of Bicycle Built for Two. Everybody from uh, Mark Mothersbaugh of Devo to Katy Perry to uh, just uh, you name it. It's it's absolutely mind-numbingly wild. And it was a limited edition of, I think, 990, 999 copies. Mark Ryden, Mark Ryden. That's it, the artist Mark Ryden. And so it was an art project, but it was a music project. So the cover is gorgeous printed on beautiful paper or cardstock or it's actually a board stock old school style 60s type cover and you know colored vinyl and you know super limited numbered edition and elizabeth found that for me one year i think for birthday or christmas and so something like that would be what what springs to mind as a like a prize piece in the collection not a record i can listen to every day <laughs> Because you hear Daisy, Daisy over and over again in all these different ways. And you feel like you're losing your mind kind of or somebody slipped you something in your drink by the time you hit the end of side one. But that kind of stuff. Yeah. The oddball, the oddball things. Yeah. Yeah. No, completely. There's so many great musicians and artists out there that can really respect what they do musically. You may not be able to listen to it every day, but you can definitely respect it. Yes where they're taking the art form. Of I, music. I, I recently was, was told to pay attention to Billie Eilish, uh, who I 
hadn't really she hadn't really hit my radar. Uh, but there was a particular production aspect of one song. I think it's the song Zanny, and boy, it's so well recorded and so weird and interesting. And and you want to talk about breaking rules? The way the chorus they distort her voice is not only it's not just distortion like you would think oh we just ran it through a distortion pedal or something it's manipulated and i think i figured out technically how i'm not gonna bore you with it but it's it's pretty amazing just how they make her bass and i mean her voice and the bass interact and create this distortion it's 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 astounding and it's a really cool song now is that a record i'm gonna listen to every day i i I don't know i listened to a few other songs on the record and was like yeah this is good but it's not something that grabs me personally but as a you know as an engineer it's good stuff (laughs) i think it's her sophomore album that i own um and she's one of a few modern day younger artists that i am more than happy to support because you know she's breaking rules and writing her own music and and it's i have a lot of respect for people who write their own music as opposed to just getting things from the reps mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is the, the mainstream you know the mainstream major label way is there's a whole lot of stuff going on in the background with a and r and and it's her brother who's who's the producer so yes, yes. yeah major respect i will definitely revisit her material at some point because it, it I, I have a sneaking suspicion it's going to grow on me but it, like i said it's not something that it, that would normally stylistically grab me but the door is open now because of that <laughs> because of that song yeah, yeah, she definitely has an interesting style and it's refreshing because you don't hear very much of that sort of thing from an either an audio standpoint or even just a musical yeah. standpoint on the radio. Oh, yeah, it's, it's way outside of, of what we would consider to be contemporary pop. So switching gears a little sure. bit, how has your life in the creative arts been different than you imagined it would be? I'm not sure if I knew what I would have imagined it would be. Aside from the, the fleeting moment where I thought maybe I might be a a performer on stage, you know, the the rock star dream, which I really quickly realized it was not going to happen because I, the concept of touring became repellent to me. I don't mind playing live shows, but, but the concept of, of pulling the rug out of one's life just to go on the road. And there's a long story behind that, but it has to do with a label wanting me to go on the road and not having enough money to even provide hotels for me and the band. Um, and asking if I owned a tent, Okay, so enough of that. Um, aside from that, that not working out the way I ma- briefly imagined it might, and I'm okay with that. The recording career side of it is kind of what I imagined it would be. I certainly had no expectations that it was going to make me rich. And for almost anybody in this field running a recording studio, unless you started with money, you're not probably going to have a lot of money. <laughs> it's just not, it's ra- the rarefied studio, even a really busy studio like ours that actually is like just raking in the dough because pe- people can't afford to pay the rates that would make you that kind of money. It's hard to justify it when people can also just get a laptop, a decent interface and record at home. And we work with a lot of people who do that. We collaborate with home recordists. So we're doing a hybrid of studio and home recording. And that's a wonderful thing for budget. So it wasn't, it wasn't anything about getting rich. That's for sure. But owning my own studio and I'm on my second business and third physical studio since 1994. Well, that was, that was kind of the dream starting around the time that I entered UMass to, to try to pursue this was like, I'm going to own a studio. 
that's what I'm going to do. And it happened. <laughs> it happened because the studio, one of the studios I was freelancing at Slaughterhouse, two of the owners wanted to get out of the business and the third one didn't. And I had been freelancing for them for a couple of years and he and I got along like, like a house on fire. We're still friends to this day. And he's like, well, let's do it. Let's team up. And we did. And he now actually owns a very beautiful studio, not too far from, from where mine is called Spirit House uh, with a engineer, Danny Bernini. So Paul McNamara and Danny Bernini, a shout out to them. They, they do wonderful work and their place is gorgeous. But yeah, it kind of worked out actually for the most part what I expected. I didn't expect that I would become a mastering engineer. That happened by accident. After about five years of doing it because people were asking me to do it, they were asking more and more and more. And eventually I said, oh, I guess I'm a mastering engineer. <laughs> and now that's about uh, between a third and a half of what I do. And I didn't even think that would be something that I would even consider. And I actually really enjoy it. Nice. Can you explain a little bit more about what that means and how it's different than what you usually do? Well, as opposed to session recording, where you're recording an artist or a band and perhaps multi-tracking a bunch of instruments and mixing them down to a stereo mix. It's the stage after that, it's the final stage before pr production or distribution of a, of a song or an album, where you take the stereo mix and ideally with perspective, so in a different studio, on different speakers, maybe with a different engineer, ideally, most of the time, at least if it's going to be the same engineer, like if I master something that I've mixed, I'm going to do it in a different room and I have designed a different room for mastering for that reason, different perspective. And for me, ideally on a different day, I'm not going to mix and then master the song in the same day most of the time because I have no perspective. I've been listening to this song all day already. But mastering is that final stage of production where you take the song or songs and you prepare them for release. So maybe a little touch-up e equalization, make, making it a little bit louder, you know, correcting things that maybe got not quite taken care of in the mix down for any number of reasons, whether it be the acoustics of the mix room or the speakers in the mix room having some sort of anomaly that influenced how the mix was done and that didn't translate out onto other systems or whatever. Correcting weird bass stuff, for example. Sometimes you'll get funny bass notes that are resonating in the mix. When you're in the mastering stage, you're like, wow, that's that frequency is bulging. And if you go into the mix room and you listen to it and the mix sounds fine, it's because that frequency was somewhat absent in the mix room. And so whoever's mixing the record is compensating for that absence of the frequency. It's a an acoustic treatment usually issue. There's no such thing as a perfect room, although there's a lot of really nicely tuned rooms, but you start getting a lot of expense in really, really acoustically flat rooms. Nice. You said you didn't imagine yourself doing that, but what are some other surprises that you've had in your career that have been a pleasant surprise? People want to work with me. It's always, it's always a pleasure to get a call or get an email particularly if it's a, a referral and so-and-so told me I should come to you, even though it's not really a surprise anymore because I've been doing this for 30 years. Well, yeah, about 30 professionally, about 30 years. It's not really a surprise because I've managed to be doing it this long. It still is pleasant and starting out, you know, scraping to get bands to work with you, uh, you know, dragging your four track to somebody's dorm room so you can record their band in a dorm room just so you can get the experience and then having that band go hey we're gonna go into the studio uh would you would you come in with us yeah sure you know just to kind of be there because they know me and trust me and that was you know when i was like 18 
band started doing that in 1819. Yeah, <laughs> that's a that's a really good thing. I mean, other than that, it, the the only real big surprise in my career has nothing to do with recording. I've always dabbled in graphic design, and when Elizabeth and I started dating, and she has her arts and literary journal Meet for Tea, her graphic designer needed to leave, needed to move on. And he had been working for free because he just loves the idea, and he was doing this magazine you know, layout for her. And he needed to move on, but I was right there, having done things like CD covers and album covers and posters and things like that. I looked at what he'd been doing and said, well, you know, I, I could take that over, I think. And I did. And I've been designing, I've been designing the layout of the magazine for every issue since, which is going on 12 years, I think. Somewhere around volume three, issue four, I think is when I started doing it. I took over for Raphael. And of course, he gave me a jumping off point. He had a, a lovely base design to work with, so I didn't have to reinvent the wheel or anything. Every three months since then, I have laid out a magazine that grew from 40 some odd pages to now over 140 pages. So that's been a nice, that's been a nice thing. And then, and that led us to the podcast, which I really enjoy doing as well. And that's of course based on meat for tea and it's, uh, you know, it's contributors and artists that we've worked with and musicians that we've had play at our shows. Oh yeah. We always do. We always do a release show every three months as well with live bands and spoken words. So there's a lot of production involved in this thing. And that's been a huge part of my life for the past more than a decade. And I, of course, I didn't see that coming. That just landed in my lap. Sounds like it keeps you pretty busy though. Oh yeah. And speaking of different projects, if you had no budgets or barriers, what do you think you would do? What would you want to do? Well, if I had no budgets or barriers, I would definitely write more of my own, my own material. The main thing that constrains me there is time, and time is constrained by having to earn a living. I think that's probably the standard story for probably most creatives. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if I would if, if if there's much I would do differently. I'd just do more of some things. Definitely my own my own music. But I just went through a phase of of releasing. I think I released five albums and seven singles in like a four and a half year period just a whole wealth of material that had just been building up. And I finally just managed to finish all this stuff and get it out. And that was up through 2020. And this year, 2021, I didn't do anything of my own. Um, and that's okay. I think after an output like that for about five years, it was like, okay, I could take a break. <laughs> the common stereotype about being a musician that you hope to break with your work. I mean, there's certainly stereotypes about the glamour of it all. And sure, there can be glamour in it, but for the most part, it's work. I think there is a, there is a stereotype of, of you go into a studio, you perform a song, and the record is done. And for most records made today, that is not how it happens. It is not live all at once, although it does happen. But yeah, I think the, the glamour of it... The, the, okay, here's, a, here's, a, here's an example. is When the whole piracy thing was really taking off, I saw a lot of people arguing, including other musicians a couple of times, musicians who were paying me to be in the studio, arguing, for example, that Metallica, who were very outspoken against piracy, well, they've already got enough money. Why should we pay them any more money for their music? They've already got enough money. And it's like, well, first of all, how do you know, really? Second of all, and that is your call to make, 
tell me how you're qualified to make that call that they have enough money. You know, it's not like they're, you know, it's not like it's Jeff Bezos who clearly has enough money. I mean, enough for a lot of people. And so I think there was a big myth about famous musicians not needing to be respected and have their art and their work respected. And of course, where we are now is we've gone to the point now where piracy is kind of a dead issue because we've got streaming and streaming is basically free. I mean, 10 bucks a month for all you can eat. It's basically free. I find I have very mixed feelings about streaming and I'm not going to get really too far off into that world. But people don't value the, the, the work in the same way anymore. It's not, it, it still costs a lot of money to make a record and just, Oh, you can make a record on your laptop at home. Yeah. But tell me how many, how many songs that really succeed that really catch the public's attention, particularly enough to make that person a living. Never mind the fact that it's hard to get paid from a recording anyway. How many of those are actually made on a laptop at home? And I might, wager that Billie Eilish is probably largely on a laptop at home, but I think they they probably take advantage of a facility as well. Uh, and if they don't, see, they're an example of you can do it at home. Sure, it's awesome. Yeah, I think I think it's it's the, it's it's the myth that the that music really is somehow this thing that shouldn't be uh, rewarded for being listened to. A penny a play, or in case of something like Spotify. I think I get paid four-tenths of a penny a play. There's no way you're going to make a living except for the very rarefied top percent of, of artists are going to make any sort of living on streaming. And the top percentage, I mean, I'm going to wager a guess, is it's in, in the single digits. Uh, the rest of people are just, just going to... You know, I, think, I think I get $50 a quarter in streaming royalties, which I think is actually kind of amazing, considering that my music is not exactly you know household name. I'm pretty happy with that. <laughs> I never really thought of that about streaming, you know, because it's it's everywhere. While it's a great place to discover new artists, I always try to go out and buy, whether digitally purchase an album or physically purchase an album when I really, really like the music so that I'm supporting the artist. But like you said, even recordings, that's not where they make their money. Isn't it usually in concerts, right? Ticket sales, Ticket sales and merchandise, t-shirts, physical goods. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's where most of it is now. I have seen a trend recently of more people talking about, I heard it on Spotify and I went and bought it on X, Y, or Z. Like I went on Bandcamp and bought it. Bandcamp is wonderful for that. And as a consumer, as a music listener, I love the convenience of streaming. Uh, I, I, I wouldn't have listened to Billie Eilish if I didn't have access to that record via streaming. It just wouldn't have been easy for me to get my hands on otherwise. Uh, so it has its upsides I mean, as uh, for the consumer, it's absolutely a fantastic time to consume music. But it's just, if it doesn't get better, it might be, become a bit untenable. You're just going to have more and more broke musicians and fewer and fewer making, making the really big, big bucks. And it would be better if there was essentially the middle class to musicians. There's no real middle class to, the, to musicians right now that I can see. And it, you know, it's, it's a big goal. Well, like everything, there's no middle class. <laughs> yeah. And I think, I mean, even in the... Like Mozart times, you know, you had a few really successful musicians and then you had people who died penniless despite how prolific they were, you know. It's unfortunate, just historically, yeah. musicians are not always treated with the respect that are that are deserved. Yeah. And it wasn't even perfect in the heyday of, of record labels, which we, we, you know, we had many decades run of, of that. My own example, 
in the early 2000s, I started putting out my own records after having been on a couple different record labels. It sort of seemed like, oh, I can just have a go at this myself. The CD Baby was a new thing. And so getting distributed to iTunes was suddenly an option. And they would sell physical product. And I, of course, could sell physical product on on my website, which I I did have a website for my music at that point. And back then, I could press a 1,000 CDs and move a fair number of them. I wouldn't need to press a 1,000, but I, I... if I press 500, they cost almost the same per unit. So it's like, well, why not have more and have them to this day? <laughs> I still have several hundred of a couple of the titles. But I was able to move hundreds of copies on CD and almost all of it directly from my website. Now, when I put on a record on a physical disc, I'll print 100 to start. And a couple times in that last run, uh, for, you know, the past five years, a couple times I had to, to press another 50 of which one of them, I think I'm out. So I managed to move about 150 of one of the titles. But, I, you know, it's okay. But it's certainly, you know, not going to make me a living. Of course, again, I don't tour. Somebody somebody right now is hearing this and going, well, if you toured. <laughs> yes, yes, if I toured, I would also probably not be able to have the career I have because touring and running a full-time studio are basically incompatible. You kind of have to do one and then stop doing the other. I don't think I can juggle it. I don't think that would work. Plus, I'm getting too old to tour anyway. <laughs> the tour life I hear is is very difficult at any age. Yeah, I I respect. I I have some fairly well known friends, uh, to put it subtly, maybe not close friends, but good acquaintances, at least decent friends who are quite well known, and all of them older than me, at least by a few years, if not a decade, who still tour. And do large shows. And I have the most respect for that. And they love it. And they love it. But they're also of the echelon where their music that they make is their is their living. They are of that echelon. So they've managed to cross that threshold and actually with all of them across it quite some time ago. But again, that's the that's the exception more than the rule. Right, right, of course. One last question for you. In your own words, what does living a creative life mean to you? Hmm. It is a good question because it's not easy to answer. Or is it easy? I don't know any different. Uh, so what does it mean? I, I, I <laughs> It's this or do what? I don't think I could. I, I have no plans on retiring. As long as my ears hold out, I'll, I'll do this as long as I can do this. Or unless something changes where it's just not no longer a viable living, which theoretically could happen, but People were predicting the the death of studios back in the 80s and 90s with home recording technologies then, and it didn't kill me. If anything, it opened up new avenues for business. So creatively, yeah, I can't imagine doing anything else. <laughs> I guess that's the best I've got. <laughs> yeah. It's, it certainly makes a life worth living. Definitely. Sure. Definitely. I, I just I can't imagine it in any other way. And then, of course, with the addition of um, you know over a decade of working on Meat for Tea, the magazine is just yet another creative outlet and uh, layer of fulfillment. So yeah, I'll take it. Excellent. Well, Mark, thank you so much for joining the podcast listeners. Please check out his bio and links to support his music. And if you happen to be a band or artist needing a recording studio in the Massachusetts area, look him up. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Like the show, have a question, 
stop by the Facebook and Instagram pages. Links are in the show notes or search for Creative Piecemeal Podcast on social media and click follow for all the latest.